Today on the show, we have a couple of comedies from the early aughts, High Fidelity from 2000 and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back from 2001, Snoochie Boochies. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, as I mentioned, we've got a couple of movies, but uh, I also have a special guest today. My brother-in-law, Dan, is with us. Hello everyone, happy to be here. Alright, so, I mean, we, we talked about this. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about something ahead of the movies. Just basically... In the spirit of High Fidelity, doing our top five shows that we'd like to check out. So I guess if we each take turns doing one, if you want to lead off with one. All right. First one I'll mention is uh, a show that I actually watched the first episode, um, but I haven't gone back to it yet. And I really want to go back to it. It's that new Sandman show. I think it's on oh, yeah. ne- Netflix, I want to say. Yeah. It, uh, I don't know. I've heard one of those one of those stories I've heard for years about how brilliant it is, but I've never actually read the the books and looking forward to diving into that one. Yeah, I definitely would like to see to see that one. I heard something recently about it hitting some viewership milestone with, you know, like having passed like Stranger Things or something. But I think it was just like currently like, you know, Stranger Things premiered a while back. So not quite as exciting, but it's still pretty cool that it's it's doing well. And yeah, I would definitely like to check that one out and the graphic novels as well. I want to see Ted Lasso so bad. I don't, I don't have any idea what it is. Like, I don't know what's going on with it, but I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I just want to watch it. And now that I have Apple, I can actually do that because that's what's been holding me back for a while. So I'm hoping, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing great things about Jason Sudeikis and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it just looks really good. Yeah. I've heard all that same stuff. Everybody I talk to is always like, Oh my God, you haven't seen that show. You got to see that show. And I'm like, I don't have Apple TV and I don't really want to get Apple TV just for one show. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, now you have access. So that's exciting. (laughs) Yes, it Um, is. I'll I'll have to add that as number six. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. So there's also, oh yeah, go go ahead with yours. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, Apple TV, so as I was looking through my, my to-watch lists and uh, putting this list together, I came across Beatles Get Back, the uh, three-part documentary that Peter Jackson made. I don't know if that counts because it's just like a little mini-series, but I added that because the only reason I had not seen it was because I thought it was on Apple TV. So when I was looking through the services that I had for stuff to include, I was like, wait a minute, I could have watched this the whole time. So that's now on my list. (laughs) What is it actually on? It's on Disney Plus. Oh, what? That's the last place I would have expected you to say. Right? Okay. Yeah. Right. So I I would like to check that one out as well. That that does. Yeah. Lucky me. Right. Um, I've, I've got another, and, and let me be clear, miniseries, docuseries, those totally count as shows we want to see. That There's no doubt in my mind that that's completely kosher to say. Um, the other, Another Apple TV one that I'd like to see is called Severance with Adam Scott. 
And again, I assume it's something about a corporate office drone of some sort, but I don't, I don't really know. And I love Adam Scott. So I, I, you know, yeah, I would give just about anything with Adam Scott a shot. Oh yeah. Like what's he's good in everything. What was the name of that show he was in Party early Down. on in his Party Down? That's the one I knew yep. you'd know. So good. Um, I love and Marino show. and uh, Lizzie Kaplan and a whole host of others. Such oh, a yeah. good show. Absolutely. Okay. So what what do you got over there? What's next on yours? The next one on mine. Uh, this this is is also kind of a. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a legal entry. But it's specifically <laughs> Stranger Things season four. Have not gotten around to watching season four yet, and I can't wait okay. to do so. But we just haven't gotten to it. We've been finishing some other stuff. So right. uh, the the series from uh, or the not the premiere the uh, season finale of what we do in the shadows was this week. So so once once that's behind us, uh, maybe we'll dive into Stranger Things season four. That'll, that'll be that's, next, maybe. That's fair. I could see that. I, I definitely need to catch up. I'm I'm like two seasons behind, and I had all this time between mm. when they premiered. So like I I think I watched the first episode of the third season, and it was like super duper. Like I know that's a whole Stranger Things thing to be like referencing movies from the 80s and stuff like that but it, it seemed like it was getting a little heavy-handed but i i need to just give it a shot and not be yeah every all, the first three seasons were fantastic and i always wonder in those those sorts of period pieces you know mm-hmm. when they when they do that when they episode one they're like just super heavy-handed with the references um it's almost like they want to beat it into you that just in case you forgot we're not in 2022. We're in 1980, whatever, you know, right. There's no doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I could agree with that. All right. Um, What's your next one? Uh, my next one is the boys. I still have not seen the boys at all. I haven't seen that either. And I, I've heard people say really good things about it. And it's like a really, really cool idea for a show. And just basically kind of like what would happen in real life if superheroes existed and like how they would sell out and, you know, this, that and the other thing. But um, you mean they wouldn't only use it for good? (laughs) Apparently that is what this show is asserting. I don't know if I can agree with that. I mean, obviously all superheroes are purely good. So I don't know. I've never known anyone with an inordinate amount of power to try and abuse it. So no, 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 that's that. Why would that happen? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the the next one on my list, my list is uh, Lovecraft country. I, I forget which service this one's on. I want to say HBO max, but it's like, uh, uh, it's a nod to HP Lovecraft and Lovecraftian, uh, horror, but it's set in like a modern age, I think in a, a black community. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it other than it looks pretty cool. I like the reference and, uh, it, I always thought it looked interesting. I just never, again, it was one of those I never got around to, to peeling into, but I'd like to. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've heard of that one. Like I, it doesn't sound familiar to me and yeah, I don't know what streaming service it would be on because of that. Pretty sure it's HBO max. Okay. Um, so my next one is. And this is kind of, I don't know if this one counts in my, in my own realm. I don't even know if this counts, but I'm going to say Daredevil Born Again is a show that's supposed to be happening based on the popular comic book by, uh, I think it's 
I can't remember who did that. Is it going to be the same that. cast as the uh, the other Daredevil show they did? It's, it's going to have Charlie Cox, and it's going to have it's going to, as far as I know, it's going to be mostly the same cast. I don't think they're recasting anybody. I don't know who, or I don't even remember that story that well to remember what happens in it. Yeah, I don't think but, I ever watched the last season or two that that whole Marvel Noir series they were doing on Netflix. I really liked it, but then I I watched I, the first several, and a couple of them weren't that good, and then yeah. it just became a a bit much because they're like 13 episode seasons and each one felt like it was six episodes too long. Right. Like, like there'd be, <laughs> that's my thing is I, I'm kind of hoping if, if they can start a new and, and do it right. Like, cause that I, I'm in the same boat as you. I feel like I kind of got like a little restless watching the original daredevil. And it's yeah, well, like, they, they get to like a really good culmination in like episode seven or eight. And then there'd mm-hmm. be like a, almost like a, part two of the season where there's a new even badder bad guy or something right and it felt like too much you know right i yeah if they would have it's funny because if they would have broken it out and just did it like a half a season at a time and just done it like that but it's like right i i I just felt like i mean obviously like with daredevil it was so dark and it was so you you got a lot of the same things it's like oh no daredevil got in a fight and he's got to go to what's her name and you know try and get back into the groove and all that stuff and like i think i even heard that rosario dawson had said that she wanted to be in the show if she could be as her character, mm-hmm. which would be the I doctor mean, or nurse or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. And I mean, it would, it would definitely be interesting. I'd like to see if, if they really change it up, if, you know, with presumably new showrunners, you know, having control over it, I want to see if it's something different. Yeah. All right. My yeah. last one is a show on, I think, I think this one is also on, HBO Max, though it might be Hulu. I don't remember, but it's called Our Flag Means Death. And it's got Reese Darby in it. And uh, what's the guy's name? Taika Waikiki or whatever his oh, name yeah. is. That guy. Uh, and it's it's about an old British aristocrat type who starts, uh, falls in with pirates and becomes a pirate. And that's Reese Darby. But he's like a gentleman pirate. And it looks really funny. And I, he's another one of those people who I'll... I'll give a shot. Anything that guy's doing because he tends to make me laugh. He's he's from Flight of the Concords. You may remember. right, right. He's so great. I he's love the him. consulate. Yeah, yeah. He's so funny. So, um, that that show is is on an HBO Max and it is um available now. So if you want to check it out, there's two seasons. It looks like out apparently. Um, uh, I don't. I'm I'm looking at my app and it's it's just kind of difficult to navigate and I don't want to do it right now. So two seasons already. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know if maybe my app's getting ahead of itself, and it's just saying, well, there's definitely going to be a season two, so we'll just put that on here. But I don't know. <laughs> um, the last one I have is one that you're probably not going to be as enthusiastic about. It's uh, Andor, which is a Star Wars uh, series that's coming out in September uh, sometime. And I, it's based on the character from the movie Rogue One. And Rogue One is like one of my favorite Star Wars movies. Like it's right up there. Like I, I really liked what they did with it. It was basically like a fan film that had a budget and it just, they did right by the story and they did what they were supposed to do. And, you know, they made it all seem so enjoyable. Yeah, I think I saw Rogue One on an airplane because I'm, as you're aware, I'm not a huge Star Wars guy. I mean, I don't wish right. it any ill will. It's just uh, has never really been my bag. Right. Um, but uh, 
So, so yeah, that one's definitely not on mine. I haven't seen the Mandal the Mandalorian, which everybody says I got to see, and I'm not particularly don't really care. <laughs> but right, I did see. I, I think I did see Rogue One, and I did enjoy it. It's uh, it could almost not even be a Star Wars movie, but it's still enjoyable kind of thing. Right, know? right. If it didn't have the little tie-ins, it could definitely right. be its own movie. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess we've gotten through our TV shows, and it's about that time to start in on these wonderful movies that we're covering today. Uh, first up is High Fidelity from March 31st, 2000. As far as the crew, we have director Stephen Frears, who I only really noted as having done Dangerous Liaisons and Mary Riley that I had like recognized. I don't know if he's if he's in your wheelhouse at all. If you know of anything, no, I, I'm uh, I'm not particularly familiar with him. I actually didn't look up all the cast and crew. I just kind of went off your notes here, and I've never okay. seen either of those movies. Okay, yeah, I have. I've I've seen bits and pieces of Mary Riley, and it was not my kind of movie. But uh, I I found I found it a little shocking that this guy did that movie though, because it was like so like polar opposite every way. It's you know it's like it's like the story of the woman with Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and mm. it's it's Julia Roberts, and so it's like it's a very dark, serious movie with. John Malkovich and I can't remember who else is in it, but it's like it's super, super crazy. Like I, I wasn't my cup of tea. Okay, so as far as writers, there were multiple writers for this, but it's based on a book by Nick Hornby. And yes, yeah, I, I, I mean, they're screenplay folk, but I mean, I think the the important part is Nick Hornby. He uh, yeah. he's written a bunch of stuff. He also wrote about a boy, um, Slam, uh, several others. I've I've read I. Th- I, I think the only two I've read are the two that were turned into movies, which were this one and about a boy. Um, okay. But he's this, this movie is like the quintessential Nick Hornby as far as I know. And it's it, just having read those two books, they're both very much the same flavor. Lots of pop, pop culture references. Um, lots of, you know, the, the main character, our protagonist is, is kind of lost um, and looking to pop culture to, for, uh, for stability or for for ballast, if you will, right, um, right. and lots of lots of clash references all around. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, and I know he's you clearly, love that. Yes, and he's clearly a big fan in real life, <laughs> right? Uh, so we we have producer Tim Beaven, Bevan, I think, and uh, he has done Four Weddings and a Funeral, which was nominated for Best Picture. Elizabeth, Notting Hill, Billy Elliot, Bridget Jones's Diary. As you can see, there's a bit of a Hugh Grant trend here. And then um, Atonement, Frost Nixon, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I need to rewatch because I I thought it was dull as all get out when I watched it, but maybe I wasn't in the right mood. Uh, And then The Theory of Everything and Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman. Uh, So for our, our score slash soundtrack, we have composer Howard Shore, and he has done some compose stuff for this though or just like assemble the the soundtrack because this the soundtrack is like mostly if not entirely you know pop songs pop songs yeah you know and and so i mean if if he did some sort of composing for it i almost don't even know if it's relevant but if he's the guy that put together the soundtrack then it's very relevant because the soundtrack is almost a a character itself in this movie. You know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, I get what you're saying. It's I, I don't honestly know the the depth with which he, you know, worked on this movie. I just knew that when I looked him up, he 
was the only he was the only person that was credited for music on this movie. And I, I'm I'm with you. I didn't really notice any instrumentation that was like native to this movie. And so I mean he but he's I mean my thing is is like if he did just assemble the songs for this movie, then I mean credit to him and like the other work he has done because he has done so many other things. He did the Lord of the Rings movies scanners after hours the fly big the silence of the lambs um philadelphia the client seven dogma which is connective tissue by the way that's uh (laughs) kevin smith movie and gangs of new york the aviator and the departed which i mean all of those movies are spectacular like they're yeah i mean in one way or another i mean i'm not necessarily a huge fan of all of them but i liked them all at least and yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, on IMDb, it lists him as original music by, right. so I don't so know. And I was paying attention to the music, but right. Exactly. Same here. I mean, I don't know oh, what well. the story is there, but yeah, I mean, it seems weird that they would hire somebody with such clear <laughs> right. chops to do this. If he's not going to do make anything. the ultimate mixtape for the for right. movie about mixtapes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. So then we've got the cast, which starts with the, John Cusack, of course. Yeah. And, and just a note on the cast on this movie, I think, and granted, I'll, I'll be up front, uh, I'm a total fanboy of this movie. It's one of my favorite all-time movies, uh, probably in my top two, certainly in my top five. Uh, and I am hard-pressed to think of a movie that is cast more perfectly from start to finish than this movie. I mean, everybody in it wow. is like perfect for the, yeah. for the role they play. Absolutely. I can agree with that. I mean, I haven't read the book, but I would say everybody, nobody seems like they're playing against character, you know, like they don't, I don't know. Nothing seems yeah, off I mean, about it. I mean, you know, as you were about to talk about John Hughes or John Hughes, John Cusack and, you know, the say anything gross point blank being John Malkovich, all these, these classics that everybody knows him from. I mean, he is Rob Gordon. It seems, you know what I oh, mean? Oh yeah. Right. Like, and he had such a career before. It's not like it was one of his early movies and it was like his breakout role. It's like these movies were huge for him before high fidelity. And he still is identified as this guy. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's yeah. so amazing. Like if you were to drop in on his character from say anything in his mid thirties, he might very well be owning a record store and lamenting all his heartbreaks. Right, exactly. Right. And and nobody laments heartbreaks quite like John Cusack. So Right, right, right. It's quintessential. And his girlfriend, I don't I don't know how to say her her last name. Ivan Hajedjli. Hajedjli, I guess, is my best guess. Yeah, I assume she's like Nor uh Norwegian or Swedish or something. Right, yeah. Some some Scandinavian something or other. Yeah, um, yeah. And she plays Laura, um, and she is the one that he breaks up with to start this movie off. And uh, she was in, she's only been in like Defiance, which I guess she is, uh, she's more of a foreign film actress. Yeah, I so think she's been on a bunch of stuff in a bunch of foreign films. Yeah, exactly. So she, I looked at her list and I'm like, it was just, you know, like reading Greek for me. It's just, you know, I'm not. I wasn't familiar with anything and, but I mean, defiance and Zootopia were the only two American movies that I recognized or at least English speaking movies. Um, and of course, 
I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Jack Black is in this movie and he plays Barry Judd. And I love Jack Black in this movie so very much. He is so great. I it, it's perfect. I mean, I I next to his name, I wrote brilliant with an ex, explanation. Right, exactly, it, he is. It's, fantastic. it's like he is Jack Black in this movie. This is the Jack Black character. It's exactly. It's it's, it's like it's, it was made for him. It was written for him. I I did watch one of the special features, and they talk about casting the roles of Dick and Barry. And for Barry, they actually pursued Jack Black for like a couple of months and finally got him to agree to do it. Because this was his first major movie role, as I recall. Right, which um, is, that's what I was going to ask, is it's like, how did they know about Jack Black? If he like, he had been in like an episode of the X-Files, he had been in like a handful of things, but I guess 2000, he was in some things that he would have been identifiable I think identifiable he was already from. in Tenacious D as well, and I believe okay. they were fairly big, like around LA, and that, that character that he plays as part of Tenacious D, I mean, the mm-hmm. Jack Black character, I think had already been established as far as I know, so I mean, right. he walks into that role, and from the the first scene where he walks through the door, it is like Jack Black as Jack Black doing Jack Black things, and he's hilarious every time he's on screen. <laughs> he really is. I love <laughs> I love watching him interact with customers. It's the best. It's yes, just yes. It's so awesome. More on that later. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, so he was also in Shallow Hell, Orange County, School of Rock, Envy, The Holiday, Bernie, and the new Jumanji movies. Um, then we have. Catherine Zeta-Jones, who plays Charlie, who is an ex-girlfriend of Rob's. And another perfect casting for the role that she uh, she plays. Yes. The, the pompous, uptight yuppie that, that he d- later discovers is completely insufferable. She plays it perfectly. Oh, she really does. She It's wonderful. Um, and also... Ever since Mask of Zorro, I always had a little little bit of a crush on uh, old Catherine Zeta because you know oh, who didn't after Mask of I Zorro. Mean, I mean, honestly, she's she's gorgeous. So if, if you were a teenager when Mask of Zorro came out, there was no way you didn't develop a crush on her in that movie. That's true. That's fair. I'd agree with that. So she was in The Phantom, The Mask of Zorro, as we've mentioned, <laughs> Traffic, America's Sweethearts, Entrapment, and. Chicago, which I still have never seen and probably never will. Not a big musical guy. <laughs> I'm right there with you on that one. <laughs> like every anytime I hear somebody talk about how wonderful of a movie it is, I'm like, I don't buy that it's going to be as good as you're saying it is because of what it is. So it might be that good. I just don't think I'll enjoy it that much. Let exactly. That. Yeah, that's that's fair. I could objectively look at it and say, yeah, this is pretty solid if you like that kind of right. um Lisa Bonet is uh she plays Marie DeSalle and she oh my god I'm sorry I'm losing my former Miss Lenny Kravitz she was in former Miss Lenny Kravitz former Miss Jason Momoa oh right she was also married to Jason Momoa I forgot about that yeah yeah they just got divorced within the last year I think and she was obviously in the Cosby show enemy of the state um I she's not she doesn't really have a big long filmography she's only been in you know a handful of movies she's been in more shows i think yeah she's she's one of those people who's famous for being herself though as well i feel you know oh I mean? yeah absolutely everybody knows um, Bonet. fun fact her daughter her and lenny kravitz's daughter zoe kravitz plays the the title or the main character in the television reboot that they did just a few years ago. I, uh, one of the streaming services, again, I forget which one, but they did a, a high fidelity series 
based uh-huh. on this story. And Zoe Kravitz plays the character that they, they make it a female and mm-hmm. it's the Rob Gordon main character. Uh, I, I tried to watch it. I got about halfway through the first season and I don't know. I think uh, it was one of those where this movie is so ingrained in my DNA that mm-hmm. it was kind of cringy to watch somebody yeah. else try and because like some of the lines, like the the dialogue is lifted right out of the movie and the book, but somebody else is saying it. And it's like not, you know, it's no knock on them, but I can't, or I can't hear anybody but Barry and Dick and John Cusack saying some of these things. And so yeah. when I hear or see somebody else do that in their way, it's like, uh, eh, I'm not on board. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, I can I can see that. I mean, yeah. usually those kinds of shows they they're really hit and miss. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Um, next up is Joan Cusack, who actually is whether or not you believe it, the sister of John Cusack, and she is in a bunch of movies with him. And she's she plays. She's Liz. one of those people who's in like seven thousand things. Oh, absolutely. And she's I honestly to look at her, I would not. Unless I didn't, you know, unless I knew it already, I would not believe that she was John Cusack's sister. Like, oh yeah, I, I don't think she looks much. She like has her all her whole thing, like her own thing going on. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Like Joan Cusack is Joan Cusack in everything. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And you didn't very even much uh, so. list it here, of course. As as we mentioned, she's in like seven thousand things. But one of the most criminally underrated movies of all time, Adam's Family Values. She plays. Oh God. Uh, Uncle Fester's suitor. <laughs> oh my God. I haven't even, I don't remember the last time I oh, watched that movie. It's been at least 20 that. years. Halloween's coming up. Mark That's it true. Down. I should, I should revisit <laughs> for Halloween. Um, she was also in the Toy Story movies from like Toy Story 2 through 4. Uh, she played Jesse, and then she was in Gross Point Blank, which was another one of those ones with John. And, um, She's she's a really solid uh, supporting actress. She she really does a good job in, in all of her movies. But like you said, she has a type. And so then we have Tim Robbins, who plays the character Ian Raymond. And, you know, I once we get lower on the list, I like to list fewer and fewer movies that people have been in. But I obviously Tim Robbins, The Shawshank Redemption and Bull Durham. Those are the two I think of with him. I know he has a bunch of others. Yeah, Tim Robbins is a weird one. So honestly, it, it, as much as I love this movie, I, I find I find it very hard to find things to criticize. But oh, yeah. Tim Robbins would be the one thing I would criticize. And I don't know. I can't really put my finger on why. I mean, Shawshank Redemption and Bull Durham are brilliant movies, and he's brilliant in them. But for some reason, there's something about him that I don't really like, and I can't put my finger on it. Yeah, and so when he shows up, and maybe I'm—I mean, granted, I'm not supposed to like him in this, right? But but there's something about him that just it irritates me when I see him, oh, and I don't yeah. know why. I, I I I am on that same wavelength. I I feel the same way about him. I like a lot of his movies, but I mean, a lot of times I just think I could have gone for somebody else in this movie playing right, the same role. Right. You know, like, was, was he really the best choice? I mean, right? Exactly. Shawshank Redemption can't get much better than it is. Right, and but yet, I, still... I can't help but think that somebody else could have played that role <laughs> yes, as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, so as far as casting notes, just uh, just one. You know, we've got Harold Ramis and Beverly D'Angelo film scenes that were cut from the film but can be viewed as extras on the DVD. Ramis played Rob's father. 
and D'Angelo played a two-tan woman trying to sell her sell Rob her soon-to-be ex-husband's record collection. Yeah, I didn't watch those deleted scenes, um, but I do recall when I read the book, the, the, the Beverly D'Angelo scene here actually is a pretty significant scene in the book. As I recall, he kind of has a revelation during that scene as he's looking through this insane record collection that's like a record store clerk's dream, especially because she's practically just trying to give it to him because she's mad at her ex-husband or whatever. And right. he ends up like he can't do it. He can't bring himself to take it because he, he feels too guilty. And there's like mint condition Elvis original pressings and Clash original pressings and all these things in it. And he just can't do it. Um, so I was kind of surprised right. that that wasn't in the movie in retrospect, even though I read the book later. But I guess you yeah. know, you're going to make cuts somewhere. I did want to mention, I mean, though, real quick. Uh, yeah. And you can you can you might have to edit around this to put this back before the the deleted <laughs> okay. scene notes. But one character. uh that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention him is the other duo of the musical moron twins, Todd Luiso, mm-hmm. who yes. has bit parts in some other things. I don't know that I've really seen him in other stuff. Uh, he's not a big star or anything, but he is another person who like physically embodies that character of Dick that he's playing. And yeah. it's brilliant. One special feature I did watch is John Cusack talking about the casting of him. Mm-hmm. and how he was like an assassin when they were filming. And okay. he got every take on the first take, like perfect. And everybody in the cast and crew couldn't stop laughing every time that he did his thing because it was so awkward and perfect. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be hard to execute. And if he's doing it that well. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I, I, I couldn't I couldn't uh, not give him the props that he needs. Right. So, I mean, plot synopsis, I just scribbled one out because this was another thing that my sister Michelle did on a previous episode where, you know, I'm, I'm thinking plot synopsis is like a light blurb, just really quick run through what the gist of the story is. But Michelle kind of dove in with her her plot synopses, like, because I had her write them for them because she's more familiar with the movies. But like, all I put was a record store owner and compulsive list maker who is in the process of a breakup recalls his top five romantic splits. It doesn't cover everything that happens in the movie, but it's the basic gist. I would add, and finds himself in the process. <laughs> yeah. <okay. laughs> Sounds good. That's I should have added that. Damn. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, what- this movie, like plot aside... It's one Mm -hmm. of those movies that the plot itself is almost secondary to me as the journey of the characters and the references and the the world they inhabit, the music. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, So I guess we can dive right into the actual movie of it all. I guess I'm going to lose my mind on this Microsoft Word app because I keep like clicking around in it and I'm like trying to scroll down and then it'll like jump up to a higher spot on the page. Oh man, it's going to drive me nuts. So if I'm ever like trailing off, not saying anything, it's because I'm literally just trying to find my place. Okay, okay. Well, while you're searching for your place, I'll the first thing right off the bat that I wanted to know, speaking of your sister, who is my uh-huh. wife, uh-huh. Uh, the top five list, uh, uh, the, the, the top five list making aspect that is prominent in this movie that keeps coming up over and over as they list, you know, their top five desert Island, Side one, track ones was always one of my favorite lists that they did. 
uh, top five albums, top five songs about death, whatever. Uh, the night that I got her number uh, at a bar in Grand Ledge, we were sitting at a table. We had run into each other by chance and we're making top five lists on the wow. backs of napkins. We were scribbling down top five songs, top five albums, all that kind of stuff. So it, it remains one of my one of my favorite uh, pastimes sitting around on a Friday with friends, drinking, making top five lists of bizarre topics. I've always enjoyed doing that. And that's one of those things in this movie that that uh, I, that's probably where I got it. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so obligatory mention right off the bat of the the killer soundtrack. It's, you know, we, we, we get right into it. We've got, you know, we're looking at a record playing, you know, it's just... And what, what song is it that's playing? I can't even remember now. In the very beginning, I don't recall. Okay, so anyway, solid song. It's all you need to really know. Just trust us on this. Um, so well, it's and again to you know kind of harp on on the importance of the music in this movie. Like I love one of the things that I love about this movie is the way that they use the music and the pop culture references to describe the characters, the experiences. Uh, you know, all the analogies throughout it all, like, like as a perfect example is when he's describing his second biggest heartbreak, he describes her as, but he describes her and paints a perfect picture of her simply by listing her top five recording artists and they're Cat right. Stevens, Carol King, Elton John, and I think the Carpenters and I forget the, the last one. Um, yeah. But it's like that alone perfectly paints the picture of that character and i can picture the person i feel like i know the person and that's all he has to say you know she's nice (laughs) right right um and the whole movie's like that and and that's yeah it's it's a really cool thing that they do throughout and they you know as we get the opening credits we get um what i think should have been the tagline for this movie and i looked it up and it was not a known tagline is what came first, the music or the misery? Like that should be the tagline for this <laughs> yes. movie. That or what he says right after that, which is, do we listen to pop music because we're miserable or are we miserable because we listen to pop music? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, it's so fucking great. And, you know, his girlfriend, Laura, is breaking up with him and he's pleading with her to stay, you know, trying to get her to stay a little longer. And, you know, Rob keeps making these desert island lists, as we've talked about. And he goes, he starts going through his top five breakups. And, you know, it's just, it's all very, it's just very cool to listen to people go through what their favorites are. Because like you said, you learn so much about who they are when they're doing that. Yeah. And, and I mean, that that's kind of one of the underlying themes of the movie as well. You know, again, going back to that, describing people and experiences by what they're into and what they like. And he even says it flat out at one part of the movie. Um, he actually literally says, you know, uh, and hang on, I wrote it down here somewhere. Uh, what really matters is what you like, not who you are like. And I don't know that I right. entirely agree with that statement. <laughs> right. I know but at the mean. same time, I can... There is something to it, you know? Yeah, exactly. If somebody craps all over the clash, I would be, I would almost take it personally like an attack on my person if they knew (laughs) I was super into the clash. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. There's certain things they become a part of you. Um, And that, that again, kind of underlies, you know, going back to that, that what should have been the, the tagline, like, that sets the stage for the entire movie that follows, you know, Yeah. as exactly. he relates these things back and forth. I even wrote a few other examples uh, 
throughout the movie. Things mm-hmm. like when he describes an imposter as someone who shaves their head, then claims they've always been into punk. Or he describes how it's, some things are hard to get over, uh, like the time their band opened for Nirvana. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it, yeah. it never, you never get over that. Or when Dick describes Maria DeSalle as a post-Partridge family pre-LA Law Susan Day, but black. <laughs> There's a, right. these, these references that frame everything over and over and over again, and it's just so brilliant. I can't get over it. Oh, yeah. I just love it. Um, I swear to God, I'm going to lose my mind here. Um, well, you were talking about the uh, getting to know someone and, you know, going over what they like. And and as he as he recounts his his tales of heartbreak and past relationships, being able to relate to that. Is that where you were going? Yeah. I mean, I was going to break into like him talking about Allison and him just. I, I mean, I'm trying to think if, because uh, I mean, the Allison flashback is so brief. It is just this girl, Allison, she's quote unquote dating him. I don't even know if he really thinks for sure that they are dating, but they're, I mean, they're junior was, high schoolers. Yeah, it was I mean, like the sixth grade version of dating. <laughs> right, right. So it's like he catches her on, you know, under the bleachers, making out with some other guy. And, you know, it's like, so it's like, that's really brief. And then, um, you know, he t- the one that the goody good that he talks about is, um, is another one that it's like, it's, it's very interesting to hear him talk about because it's like, it's amazing to think that he puts the, the one that happened when he was like, you know, junior high school level, he puts those in the top five, you know, like he puts, he puts something like that where it was obviously like a crushing blow to his ego way back when. Yeah, well, I think they're, you know, even if they were brief, you know, and, and what you would think in retrospect, not that significant. They're happening at very, very character forming, significant moments of his life. You know, when he's right. in seventh grade, when he's in, you know, when he's in 10th grade kind of thing, like at these pivotal moments of his life, he's having these experiences that are defining who he becomes later in life. Right. Um, oh, Penny is the name of the next one that he mentioned. Penny Hardwick. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so um, she's, you know, he accuses her of being a bit of a prude and he's just losing his mind because he can't understand why she won't have sex with him. And it, they've been dating for however long. And it's like, he's just, he's fed up with it. And it's like, then he finds out later that this girl had sex with some guy after like three dates or something. And he's like, what, why not me? Why couldn't I, you know, have that happen? Yeah. He totally internalizes it. And exactly. I mean, to, to flash forward when he finally looks her up and meets her again later, uh, one of the funny, the funniest exchanges, well, one of the cringiest and funniest exchanges I think in the movie is his reaction to her reaction when he asks her why she broke up with it. And right. she reminds him that he broke up with her and then goes on to like break down into tears and talk about basically how she was date raped after that. Yeah. And it's this really heavy moment and she stomps away and all he takes from the entire exchange is she's right. I broke up with her. I should have done this years ago. <laughs> like, that's all he takes from this like horrifying story of getting date raped. Right. Yeah. He's, so no. it's like, I won't say it's a good thing, but it's like somehow really funny. That that's all he takes from that. Exchange. It's pretty indicative of his maturity level. Like yes. it's just yes, pretty it really bad. Is. Um, and so, so get, Oh yeah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, go go on to the next one, because I, I find the next one a really interesting talking point. Uh, the Catherine Zeta-Jones character. Oh, yeah. So Charlie Nicholson is his next breakup that he talks about. Rob's just convinced that she was completely out of his league and that she would leave him for someone better. And then she did. And... I mean, the the thing that I love about that character, though, um, again, because I, I feel like each one of these characters, it's, you know, the, the his memory of them only tells half the story, right? It's when he comes back to them later in life. And because that's that's so, again, part of this, the plot synopsis here is he goes over his five most painful breakups of his life. But then he looks these women up and reestablishes contact with them to try and figure out why is it that he keeps getting dumped? What's going on? He's trying to like figure out his life. Right. And I always found the the Charlie Nicholson one to be one of the most fascinating little stories, mm-hmm. you know, kind of micro story within the bigger story, which is this woman who he was enamored with. She was mm-hmm. just the most brilliant smartest, most interesting, most beautiful person that was just so far out of his league. And over the years, I imagine he's built it up in his own imagination about just how, you know, this this pedestal that he's put her on. So -hmm. when he comes back and meets her years later, he finds without the rose colored glasses on, you know, that he had as a college student, she's an insufferable bore. Like everything she says is miserable and she doesn't listen to anyone. And, you know, she's not interesting. She's like, it's, it's like he wants to kill himself at this dinner party that he goes to. All Mm -hmm. he can think of is how I hate her and everything she's about and everyone she's with. And this is miserable. I cannot believe I thought she was so great, you know, and, and that like the analogy to like life in general, right? Like how many people did you know when you were a kid who were like the coolest kid in school or somebody that you looked up to or whatever. And then years later as an adult, you know, you might run into them somewhere and be like, what did I see in this person? Like, why did I think they were so cool? They kind of suck. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I noted this, this one little quote of top five musical crimes committed by Stevie wonder. And I don't know why that just really cracks me up when I hear it. Um, Sub question. Yeah. He asked that and he says, sub question, is it better to burn out or to fade away? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then we get, so we get the river by Bruce Springsteen playing here in this stretch. I don't remember if this is when Bruce Springsteen shows up. Do you remember where, where that is in the lay of the land? I don't recall. He does show up eventually, though, and helps him. uh, He's like represents his own inner monologue. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so moving on to Sarah, I guess would probably be the best bet. So they him and this girl, Sarah, they worked really well together. Uh, She just kind of like callously dumped him after finding someone else and not really giving any explanation. It wasn't like there's something wrong with you. It was like she just was interested in somebody else and that was it. You know, it was just pretty straightforward. But it's like, I I feel like this is kind of like of of the five, this is like the least interesting of them. Like, I don't... I I don't know. I I kind of... uh... I find it interesting, but in a different way, because it's like the complete opposite of Charlie, right? Whereas Charlie is this person that was on a pedestal that he was enamored with. Uh, Sarah is someone who he can just be miserable with. It's like misery misery loves company. And that's really all their relationship was built on. So I think the significance of her leaving is that 
he no longer has that company anymore, right? They go right. from being together in their misery to she she comes out of it and he doesn't. And she leaves him alone in his misery to just wallow in. But again, right. when he comes back to her years later, even though he's miserable again, she's even more miserable. And it's like, ugh, another bullet <laughs> dodged, you know, as he right. like comes catharsis on each one of these these visitations with these women about, you know, what bullet he dodged or how he's completely missed the point in retrospect. And so I think that's one where, you know, he has a chance to get back with this girl. She would love nothing more than to get back with him. And he's not interested, you know? Yeah, exactly. He's exercised that demon. And and I, I feel like that kind of leads to him realizing he doesn't want to be miserable. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. So there's um, something there. Right, right. And so his mother finds out that he broke up with Laura on a phone call and essentially blames him for what happened. And I just, <laughs> go ahead. Another moment that, that I absolutely love in that movie when she, his mom starts crying and he says, I hope this is because you, you're sad for me. And she says, no, and, <laughs> and he loses. He says, well, it fucking should be. <laughs> <You know? Jeez. laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. I laughed out loud at that, that moment. It's so great. <laughs> Um, I made note that Jack Black is such a fucking treasure in this movie. He's such a horrible employee and he's just like he, the things that he does to these customers, the callousness with which he does not care about what their needs are or like, and has no desire to help them at all. It's just amazing. I mean, I can't really believe it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wanted to dive into the, the record store, uh, culture. Okay. That is so prominent in this movie because because yeah you're, you're absolutely right the the way that he interacts with customers both in good and bad ways like when he when he makes fun of the the dorky middle aged guy who wants to you know buy some terrible record for his daughter and he won't sell it to him and, right and the guy stomps out of the store in a huff or when he's leading the guy around the store uh, you know chastising him for not listening to uh, Echo Echo and the Bunnymen or, or one of those bands. Right. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then, you know, giving him Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde and like hugging him because everything's going to be okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stuff like that. Like it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I, as you're aware, I, I love going to record stores. I have records myself. I love pawing through the bins. And there's something about that record store culture that, you know, that discovery of going through mm -hmm. the bins and pulling something out because of the what's on the cover or something, you know, a, another note that I made, th sometimes they'll be playing something, some obscure music that you've never heard before. And you'll be like, God, that's really good. Yeah. And then buy. Oh yeah. So he does that with the beta band. The, the, the record is three EPs, which is actually a compilation of literally three beta band EPs that they put all in one CD. I have that CD, which I bought because of this movie, <laughs> but mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that, experience has actually happened to me in real life where I've been in flat black and circular in East Lansing and they've been playing something and I've said, what is that? What are you guys playing? They told me, and then I bought that record right there on the spot. Yes. I have, I have had that happen as well. I've, I mean, they just throw stuff. Sometimes they'll just throw something on. They're just like, Oh, we just got this in. Let's give it a shot. You know, like, let's see what it is. And I mean, there's, there's been some stuff that I have loved that they were playing and I'm like, I need to have this, like this needs to be in my life. And it might be, uh, part of that nostalgia you know experience that really speaks to me you know but like it's it's an experience you don't really get with you know spotify or apple music or whatever you know and it's one of the, the reasons i think why i've always 
remained sort of attached to like my physical medium music collection, my CDs and my records because of that experience. There's some tangible connection to that entire world that I just love, you know, and it again goes back to like making top five lists and talking about, you know, why something would be on my list, but not on yours. And what Rob gives what I thought is a pretty darn good list of top five side one track ones, though not all of them would be on my list when Barry chastises him for being too obvious and says, you know, well, why don't you just say side one, track one of Beethoven's fifth symphony? (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's so awesome. Uh, Oh God. I love it. It's, it's great because you can just feel the real, like, you know, it's just Jack Black. You know what I mean? It's not like he's doing a character. He is Jack Blacking it. Like that's all there is to it. Right. Right. It's so great. Um, so Liz, who is a mutual friend of Rob and Laura calls Rob to see if he's okay. And she reveals that Laura is now dating some guy named Ian and it is revealed. Oh God. Why does this keep happening to me? It is revealed that she's dating his former neighbor played by Tim Robbins, who is a insufferably hippy dippy world music listening, long haired patchouli hippie. (laughs) Right. And so, okay. Well, we, yeah, we find that out in a fantasy sequence. And then we get uh, Liz just shows up and tells Rob that he's an asshole, presumably after learning something that Laura has told her. And so she's like not on Rob's side anymore at all. She's not being, uh, you know, a mediator. She's just, you know, she's all for Laura in this situation. But yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great movie. It's, you know, it's, it's got a lot of enjoyable parts. And like Dan's saying, it's, you know, it's secondary. The plot is secondary to this movie. It is not really what this movie is about, really. I mean, it is and it isn't. It serves as sort of an engine for his self-discovery and all the, uh, uh, the you know, the, the life lessons that he talks about along the way, which we didn't mention, but there's a lot of uh, fourth wall breaking in this movie. Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's quite lots a bit. of Rob talking to the camera, even when other uh, characters are are in the background or, or right. in the in the scene. Um, this was the eighth film of ten in which John and Joan Cusack appeared. There are five records d- displayed on the ro- walls of Rob's apartment. You know, you could obviously, if you watch it, you could probably figure out what they are. Um, so the the trivia thing mentioned that they're presumably supposed to be Rob's uh, top five records. I question yeah. this having having read the book and knowing what I know about uh, Nick Hornby and John Cusack. I I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually the top five records of like one of the producers or the uh, or the director or somebody that they snuck in there. That's yeah, that's probably accurate. But um, that's just because I've watched this movie ten thousand times and read the book, etc. So okay, so runtime one hundred and thirteen minutes, budget thirty million dollars, worldwide gross. million. IMDb rating 7.4. Rotten Tomato critic score 91%. Rotten Tomato audience score 90%. Personal rating 5 out of 5 stars. This is a classic. This is great. Yeah, 5 out of 5 mixtapes from me. There you go. Um, So then we move on to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. From August 24th, 2001, directed by Kevin Smith. I know you're a big Kevin Smith fan. I am. Uh, we, we have uh, Clerks, Mall Rats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Jersey Girl, Clerks 2, Zack and Miri Make a Porno, Cop Out, Red State, 
Tusk, Yoga Hosers, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, and Clerks 3, which is in post-production. I think it's supposed to be coming out like this weekend or this next weekend or something. Yeah, I know it's imminent. He's doing his thing where he like travels the country and, and goes to theaters and you can watch it like with him. And then he does Q&A afterward. That's like how right. he does his these days. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And I, um, and I think he's embarking on said tour, so... Okay. Um, so this is written by Kevin Smith, produced by Scott Mosier, who notably produces a lot of Kevin Smith movies and Goodwill Hunting. He also recently directed the latest Grinch movie. The oh uh, no, that's that's a day uh, if I've ever heard one. The uh, was it a CGI movie that they made? Not yeah, too long it was, ago? yeah, it was computer animated. Yeah, yeah, I think he he directed that. Scott okay. Mosier did. Okay, so for the score, we have James L. Venable, Venable, something like that. He has only made later Kevin Smith movies and Scary Movie 3, and I think he made like 4 and 5 as well. So not really a huge notable. But I'll, I'll be, I'll, I will say that the, the incidental music in this movie is very fitting. Like it works really well as being like a silly movie, you know, just kind of off the wall comedy. It, it, re- I think it, really, it really does. Well. But on, on your note about, you know, his, most of his work just being later Kevin Smith movies. I, I think it's worth noting that that's, and it's very particularly relevant to this movie that we're going to talk about, that that is kind of one of his trademarks. He uses the same people over and over again. Oh Yeah even to the extent that many of them are just his friends, like the director of photography for all his movies is David Klein. The producer for all his movies is Scott Mosier. As we get into the cast and crew, this movie, it's all people who have showed up in previous movies. Brian O'Halloran was the main character in Clerks. And at one point, I think the his entire filmography was just Kevin Smith movies. And at, at mm-hmm. one point, by the time they made this, there was actually, I recall years ago, there's a little bit of trivia that as of like the making of this movie, he was the only actor that had shown up in every single one of Kevin Smith's movies to date, right. even as like little bit parts in yeah. mall rats and dogma and stuff. You have to kind of look for him, but he's there. Right. And on that note, also, I was going to mention when you were talking, when you were listening to Kevin Smith's movies, I think a key point to make here is this movie was made after Dogma, before Jersey Girl. And the reason I think that's important is that if you haven't seen the preceding four movies, Clerks, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, and Dogma, this movie will make zero sense to you. Yeah. If you're thinking, oh, I want to watch this silly movie. If you have I mean, not seen still, those four movies. There is I, still comedy to be had. Like there, there's still funny stuff that's not a direct reference. But yes, most of the, the in-jokes are all about mm-hmm. Kevin Smith movies. Right. And there there are jokes to be had and, and funny moments to be enjoyed. But I mean, I was watching it with a, a trying to keep a sharp eye throughout the entire movie as uh, granted, it's the first time I've seen it in probably a decade or more. Uh, but every single scene features references to past movies. So, like, there are entire there's lines of dialogue, exchanges between characters, pre established relationships that you won't understand if you haven't watched those movies. I mean, right. I, I list it as both a criticism and. Uh, a bit of praise is that on one hand he play it, he plays so much fan service in this movie that I I can't imagine it would be 
it would hold up today to like if some 16 year old just popped it in because they heard it was funny and had never seen any other Kevin Smith movie. I can't imagine they would enjoy it that well. But at the same time, he explicitly intended this to be a movie full of fan service. Like that's what he was going for. It was it was like a thank you to the fans for sticking around with him. It was it was supposed to originally be retiring those two characters that had shown up in every single one of his movies. He was kind of wishing them, you know, farewell and he was going to move on and do other things. Uh, So he like completely dove in head first on that fan service aspect of it. And he really like didn't compromise. And I kind of tip my hat to that. Like, you know, for the fans. Yeah. Um, so as you know, as we get into this, you know, we've got the cast, you know, we've mentioned a lot of the same people playing the same roles. Uh, Jason Muse always plays Jay. Kevin Smith plays Silent Bob. And this was, I think, birthed from Kevin Smith to explain it as I can't fucking act. And that's why he said that he created this Silent Bob character is that he he didn't have to say any lines, but he could you know, have a part in the movie. Yeah, and- he originally wrote the part of Randall in Clerks for himself. He wanted to be the, the funny Randall character, which was based on Brian Johnson, one of his childhood friends, uh, who also worked at the Quick Stop with him. And yeah, they went to go start shooting and he realized he couldn't act. <laughs> so he gave right. himself the, the Silent Bob role. <laughs> right, which he has come around. He's become a much better actor. I've seen him in things here and there. Like Die Hard with a Vengeance, he he did a really decent job as you know this like nerdy computer guy that they go to see. But so we've got Jeff Anderson who plays Randall Graves, Brian O'Halloran who plays Dante Hicks, Shannon Elizabeth who plays Justice. And again, Elis- those last two that you mentioned, Jeff Anderson, Brian O'Halloran as Randall Graves and Dante Hicks, those are characters from Clerks. So those aren't right. new characters from this movie. Right. And so Eliza Dushku is a sissy and Ben Affleck plays himself slash Holden McNeil slash Chucky Sullivan. And then also from oh. pre- previous characters from previous movies, Holden mm-hmm. McNeil is from Chasing Amy, Chucky Sullivan is from Goodwill Hunting, not a Kevin Smith movie, but there's a tie in there as well. <laughs> yes, there is, most definitely. He plays um, himself and Chucky Sullivan in the same scene. It's worth noting. <laughs> it is. And and I have heard that like Kevin Smith played an integral part in Goodwill Hunting being discovered as a movie like he got it to Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, he's the guy who pulled it out of the dustbin and kept putting it on his desk until he read it and said, wow, this is a really good movie. We should make this. Kevin right. Smith uh, allegedly kind of made it happen. Like, right. got it green-lighted. Hence, um, Ben Affleck oh. keeps showing up in his movies for like almost next to nothing because he he has this like perpetual favor <laughs> hanging over his head right. in his career. Yeah. And then we've got Ollie Larder, who plays Chrissy. Jennifer Schwalbach, who plays... Missy, who is actually Kevin Smith's wife, and then uh, Will Farrell, who plays Federal Wildlife Marshal Will and Holly, which is apparently a reference to Land of the Lost, where the characters were named Marshall, Will, and Holly. Huh. And I did not know that. And Will Farrell actually f- starred in the Land of the Lost movie. Like, oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. which nobody saw, but you know, I think that one that might be one of the few uh, original characters who of someone who wasn't 
like the actor wasn't in his earlier movies and the character wasn't in his earlier movies. Right. Yep. And then along with the girl gang, I guess. Right. Right. And then Jason Lee, who plays Brody, Bruce and Banky Edwards. And also characters from previous movies, Brody being mall rats and Banky Edwards being chasing Amy. Right. Okay. And so casting notes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to, I was going to say this movie, I mean, leaning into that fan service aspect, there are other appearances by, and I'm just going to, rip through this list here. Matt Damon, Wes Craven, Shannon Doherty, Gus Van Sant, the How About Them Apples guy from Goodwill Hunting, Jason Biggs, James Vanderbeek, George Carlin, Carrie Fisher, Diedrich Bader, Chris Rock, Mark Hamill, Jamie Kennedy, Joey Lauren Adams, Trish the Dish, Steve Dave and Fanboy, played by Brian Johnson and Walt Flanagan from the podcast Tell Him Steve Dave and AMC's Comic Book Men, Morris Day in the Times, Scott Mosier, also in multiple roles, Snowball from Clerks and the Tracer Hater from Chasing Amy, which is the scene that got cut. Jason Lee's ex-wife, Judd Nelson, Sean William Scott. I think I hit them all. IMDb says Alanis Morissette, Morissette showed up, but I watched really closely. And I did don't not remember that at all. Yeah, <laughs> I even watched the deleted scenes just to see if she got cut and never saw her. The only right. notable absences were Linda Fiorentino from Dogma, who famously they did not get along at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Ethan Stuplay from Mallrats, he never shows up. Uh, either Jeremy or Jason London, whichever, whichever one's in Mallrats, doesn't show up. Claire Forlani from Mallrats and Selma Hayek from Dogma. None of them show up, but damn near everybody else he's ever worked with pops in at least for a minute. And there's some big names in that list. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Um, so Baby Silent Bob was played by Harley Quinn Smith, Kevin Smith's daughter. And um, the voice of Scooby-Doo was provided by Mark Hamill because Mark Hamill is a very gifted voice actor. Another another uh, example of somebody playing more than one role. Exactly. I, <laughs> I mean, hadn't even considered that. Cockknocker and, you know, I mean, the classiest name ever, Cockknocker. Yeah. Um, okay, so. So I, I had a couple other, uh, and this yeah. goes to my uh, ridiculous uh, once upon a time fanboyness for everything Kevin Smith. But the, a couple of other really obscure connections here. Mm-hmm. The the girl that plays n- not Daphne, but Daphne, because they didn't get the licensing rights for Scooby-Doo. <laughs> right. Is Jason Lee's ex-wife, who oh, has okay. also played a very bit part in Chasing Amy as Joy Lauren Adams' girlfriend. Oh, okay. Wow. I forgot all about that. Very, very brief little moment there. You already mentioned Missy as Kevin Smith's wife. And the guy that walks out of the quick stop in the very beginning of the movie, when they're like showing the quick stop from the front and the two babies are there. Right. And a guy walks out and just walks down the sidewalk and away. That guy is the guy who played the roofer in Clerks. He happened to be on set or he came by as they were shooting and they threw him in as a little tiny Easter egg. And that's like, granted, you got to like really be into the what's going on to know that. But it's those little Easter eggs that show up over and over and over and over in this movie, in the background, in the foreground and little references here and there that if you're like a Kevin Smith fan, it's just full of them. So, right. Absolutely. So plot synopsis. Upon learning that the comic book they were the basis for is being made into a movie and internet trolls are bad-mouthing it, Jay and Silent Bob go on a road trip to Hollywood to stop the film from being made. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I love the the concept of, like, them talking about, you know, like, all the buzz coming off of uh, 
X-Men hitting it at the box box office that this is why this comic book is being made. Like it's just, it's like perfect, a perfect storyline for this era. Cause this is like pre Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, but post X-Men, you know, it's just like they, they really caught it at the right time to make this the storyline. Yeah. I think it was a moment in Hollywood where, where comic books were getting licensed left and right for what became the huge boom that we've seen since. Right. And, Dante and Randall call and they get a restraining order on Jay and Bob for basically having a little altercation with, well, they're selling drugs outside of the, uh, outside of the quick stop. And they basically Randall has had it and he's just like, all right, screw it. I'm not dealing with these guys anymore. And so he gets them kicked out and the cops come and all that fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, another note on the, the, the overarching plot plot line and, you know, the tie into comic books, it's again, another tie into to the whole Kevin Smith, everything. Um, it's not a coincidence that his characters in two or three, yeah, two of the four movies that precede this are obsessed with comics or like that plays a very central role. The right. Brody Bruce character is obsessed with comic books and they even get a, a, a cameo from Stan Lee in Mallrats. And then in Chasing Amy, the two main characters, Ben Affleck and Jason Lee, are comic book creators. One of them's the inker, one of them's uh, the the drawer, and they, they're writing comic books. They're the writers of Blunt Man and Chronic based on Jay and Silent Bob. So it's like it's, it's all tying into... Uh, and then in real life, he owns Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash in New Jersey, which was the setting for... Uh, the AMC show, Comic Book Men. Oh, right. I forgot that show existed. Yeah, Yeah. so that's like a Um, real thing in his life. He's like obsessed with comic books. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I mean, yeah, Kevin Smith is definitely... I've read one of the Batman comics he wrote. Is it Widening Gyre? Yeah, not a fan of that, but you know... So uh, fun fact about that one, the art in that, the art was done by Walt Flanagan, who is the guy that plays fanboy and he plays four different characters and clerks. And he actually, until very recently was the manager of his, his uh, comic book store. He had been the manager there for like 15, 20 years or something. He just recently uh, left, but, and he does a a podcast um, called tell him Steve Dave, which is the line that Brian Johnson says to him in every movie. It's them to do a podcast that I listen to. Um, but yeah, he's, he's actually like a super good artist and did, uh, did the art for Widening Gyre. So they, they go and they're, they're, they go to see Holden McNeil and, you know, he shows them what people have been saying about their movie. Like he tells them that there's a movie being made about their, the characters they were the basis for. And he, or no, he doesn't tell them, Banky does. But anyway, he, he explains to them that there's a lot of people talking shit on the internet and saying bad things. And Jay and Silent Bob are getting really offended by it because it's like they're talking shit about them. But in reality, it's just the fictional characters that they're based on or that they're the basis for. And so they decide they've got to go to Hollywood and stop the movie from getting made and all this stuff. And like, it's a, it's a great, like, it's such a great road comedy for me. Like if you don't get any of the in references, I still think that like, it's highly enjoyable from the standpoint of, cause like I haven't seen, I've seen mall rats and clerks more recently, but I haven't seen chasing Amy in so long. It, it, it's just, but like any of the references to that are probably going to fall flat for me. Cause I don't really remember anything. I just recognize the people. So it's like, it's not as, but it's, I still think it stands apart as a, a good movie. It's just not as, uh, it's just got so much 
for well, in references. De- yeah, it definitely has some parts that stand on their own, like the the scene you're talking about when they learn what the internet is. <laughs> what the right. fuck's the internet? <laughs> right. <laughs> and he shows it to him, and he he like synopsizes the entirety of the internet as a place where nerds get together and complain about movies, which is is like it was very prescient, you know, because that's like right. what the internet has become in a larger degree is just a place for people to get together and complain about things. <laughs> yeah, and and so they you know they go on this road trip, they're hitchhiking. They get picked up by a variety of different people like we've talked about that make cameo appearances in this movie. And they ultimately end up with this group of girls and this guy named Brent who is uh, like he plays guitar. He's played by Sean William Scott. And and according to the uh, special features, uh, like behind the scenes, he was one of the funniest people they've ever had on on set like. They, oh, really? they almost couldn't get through any of the scenes he was in because all the actors couldn't keep a straight face. Like when he's <laughs> singing his ridiculous songs and when he, yeah. when, he when he says, cause I love animals. <laughs> like Jason, <laughs> Jason Mewes could not keep it together. <laughs> I love that they actually paint him up as like being a guy that all the girls adore, you know, they're all like, Oh, Brent, you know? And he's just like, what's all this talk about farting? And it's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, I guess. So, you know, basically what what the concept is, is that this group of girls is going to use Brent as a patsy to, they're going to rob a diamond exchange and they're going to have Brent break into, because the, the ruse is that they are animal rights activists and they're going to use Brent breaking into the lab near the diamond exchange as a diversion so that they can get away. And, Basically, Jay and Silent Bob throw Brent out of the car or out of the van. And so they have to move on and like, you know, figure out what they're going to do. Are they going to try and use Jay and Silent Bob? Are they going to use something else? I mean, it seems pretty obvious that it's going to be Jay and Silent Bob. So, I mean, the pacing of this movie, like it's a road, it's a road movie. So it's like when you're watching it, you want it to be well paced and and you want to have something happen every every few beats or so you know just yeah, they like, gotta you, keep moving right because i mean it's like if it starts to get slow and you're on the road like when else are you going to pick it up you know so um but they go to a lot of different they you know they go to the diamond exchange and there's you know um jay and silent bob are led to believe that they were killed and uh an explosion and but the, so they have this monkey and they're on the run they have i, mean, I should say an orangutan and they're it's on an the ape, run not a monkey <laughs> yes it's, it's a member of the great ape family as uh, judd nelson tells us right <laughs> and so they make off you know that they're running with it and then all of a sudden the you know eventually you know after a few different run-ins with the law you know we have we have in- been introduced to will ferrell's character federal wildlife marshal will and holly and he he is I, he is a trip in this movie honestly he is he so is ridiculous he's so great and so you know he's there's a scene where they're leaving a di- or they're trying to uh they're in a standoff with this di- with them in this diner and they are trying to Jay and Silent Bob are trying to escape and so they pretend that the the orangutan is the like their son and that they're a gay couple and that they want to take their son out of this hostile environment. And Will Ferrell like goes along with it because he's afraid of like, you know, the the reputation he would he would the negative backlash from like, you know, he essentially is trying movies. to avoid canceled years before cancel culture yes, was a thing. yes 
He's like, like, I'm not going to be the one. (laughs) What I am trying to avoid here is a political fiasco (laughs) by this butt-fucking Brady bunch. It's like, oh my God. (laughs) So anyway, so Jay Jay and Bob get away from the diner and then they the the monk the ape gets picked up by somebody's you know some critters of hollywood car and so they take the the ape away and so they they're like we've got to go to hollywood we've got to get there we're going there anyway and so they you know they get to hollywood we see a whole bunch of different movie sets one one that i would be remiss if i didn't specifically talk about here is Goodwill Hunting Two Hunting Season, which, which is, is brilliant. <laughs> it's the most brilliant. It's and it's so great. You know, you get like Ben Affleck's got like frosted tips, and like he's just like him and Matt Damon are like kind of razzing each other about each other's careers and stuff. And like they're just they're so priceless in this movie. I just fucking love them. And they're I'm trying to think if they're uh I mean. The the original guy that they run into in Goodwill Hunting appeared on this movie. Yeah. Yeah, the how about them apples. Yeah. And so I mean, Jay and Silent Bob kind of like just get to watch the scene unfold and it's just so uproariously ridiculous. And then they go, you know, they run into like uh the set of a scream movie and Wes Craven and Shannon Doherty are there. And then you get like uh oh, I mean there's what was the other one they went to? I know there's the one where they, it was they, like the movies. When they're running through the lot, uh, they run past a daredevil scene, which again, it's like, I don't think it's obvious it's daredevil, but yet it's kind of obvious it's daredevil kind of right. thing. And this yeah. would have been, I believe, after Matt or Matt Damon, uh, Ben Affleck played daredevil in that terrible daredevil movie. Right. And that was another one where I think Kevin Smith was the guy that recommended him for that role and like kind of got was, that job. Did you say you thought it was before? I thought it was before. Is it not? Yeah, this this movie was before for sure. Because I I think Daredevil was like oh three oh four maybe. Oh okay, then the timeline skewed there. I uh, that's my mistake. I thought Daredevil had yeah, well, and I only assumed that because they run past and there's clearly Daredevil fighting off bad guys. So I assumed that was a right. A and I mean, I could that. be wrong. I I might be wrong. I'll be honest with you. But uh, no, you're right. I thought it was it was, was two thousand three. Okay. Okay. So then they eventually get to the set of the Blunt Man, Blunt Man and Chronic movie after having a run in with the guys that were supposed to play them, Jason Biggs and J- James Vanderbeek. And they, they get on the set. They're all in costume, all this stuff. Chris Rock is the director. He's uh, Shaka Luther King. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and and he is brilliant role. <laughs> oh, it is. And so Chris Rock doing Chris Rock things. <laughs> right. And then, you know, the, the bad guy Cockknockers played by Mark Hamill. And, you know, this is where we get the final showdown because the justice has decided that, you know, she can't let Jay and Bob take this fall for this. So they, which, which by the way, that's one of those weird things about this movie that, that uh, I've heard Kevin Smith did on purpose was there is absolutely zero reason whatsoever throughout this movie that Shannon Elizabeth's character should have any fondness at all for Jay, like right. at all. They never give you a reason. It's, why it's she very completely him. unearned. She's just like never, enamored he with never him. Speak to her. He's, he's, right. he's self the whole time, but he was cognizant of that and he did it on purpose. He, he wanted, you know, where, whereas his previous movies always had like some thread of like a dramatic uh, relationship driving a character. Yeah. He wanted to make this one in a way where there is absolutely no reason 
that they they should be having this connection and it's absurd and doesn't make any sense, but she loves him anyway. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty ridiculous. I kind of wondered that myself a couple of times, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the gist of it. You know, like th- there's a big showdown and then uh, just a little bit of, I mean, I guess closing thoughts on the movie as far as, you know, just, wrapping up the plot. I mean, I would say I personally, I think that the movie is, is a sound movie. I think that a a drawback to it is the influx of in references are so difficult to understand if you don't know the movies. And it's like, it kind of takes it away because it's like, I feel like I almost need to rewatch Kevin Smith's movies all over again before I watch this one to understand what the hell I'm looking at. And that's, that's my only real gripe is it's, but it's, it's what he was going for. So I can't right. really be that upset with him. It's kind of what I said earlier. It's like on one hand, it, it makes the movie not age so well because right. the, you know, the odds that someone has seen those, a newcomer to this movie has seen the predecessors is going to be less and less as time goes on. But at the same time, it's exactly what he was going for. Like he right. had, it was the whole point. Um, the other notes I wrote down for kind of final thoughts were, uh, so I definitely thought it was funnier the first time I saw it, though uh, the the Will Ferrell and Chris Rock characters now in retrospect to me, or you know, all these years later, stood out stood out as the funniest char- characters to me now. Right. Yep. Um, also, maybe as you said, Affleck and Damon when they were playing themselves was brilliant. Um, but the, the the other thought I was I had was like there are a lot of gay jokes in this movie, like oh. a lot. And I don't know if I feel qualified to say whether or not they've aged well, like in this day and age, because I know that Kevin Smith has a gay brother. And I know that, you know, it's not coincidental that gay references or gay jokes make it into his movies. Um, But like, I don't really feel qualified to say whether or not I think that aspect has aged well. But one thing that I did notice that completely jumped out at me that I would have never noticed before that I don't think has aged well is if you watch the scene with Chris Rock, Chris Rock's character makes two two separate occasions references the women in his trailer who want a movie part and are willing to do sexual favors for him. Yeah, that's this, very true. In retrospect, the fact that this is a Miramax movie. Yeah. That is executive produced by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. I see that now. I have to think that if Chris Rock sees that now, he goes, wish i could take that one back (laughs) yeah i bet no i i i saw that too and as far as the gay jokes i would say like kevin smith had been criticized when this movie came out about the gay jokes in it and he essentially just wrote it off and said i don't i don't mean them insultingly i mean them to be funny you know i'm not trying to insult any gay person or anything like that which I don't know. It's the the gay jokes are pretty pretty heavy handed. Like they're pretty pronounced. You know, it's not like it's just an occasional. You know, like maybe one of the, they're one of those gay couples, and it's like no, it's not just that. It's you know, it's like uh, yeah, like like when he says you know some of the the things that Jay says are definitely like I don't know how they wouldn't be taken as being disparaging <laughs> toward right, that exactly right. But at the yeah. same time, then you see later on when when he needs to give. Uh, Silent Bob a blowjob to get out of uh, getting arrested by Diedrich Bader. Kevin Smith looks at the camera and admits, "Yeah, I was going to do it." <laughs> <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. So like, exactly. there's these weird little little things that he does. But yeah. Again, I I don't know. I don't want to be on uh, recorded as saying one way or the other 
<laughs> no, <laughs> right. For how others should feel that are actually in that community. Right. The word fuck is used 248 times in the movie. It was the first film in which Carrie Fisher and Mark, Mark Hamill had appeared together since Return of the Jedi. And neither of them knew that they were going to be in the film together until after the fact. Runtime, 104 minutes. Budget, $22 million. Worldwide gross, $33.8 million. IMDb rating, 6.8. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 52%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 75%. Personal rating, 4 out of 5 stars. I love it, but for the reasons we've talked about here, I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm not. There, there's stuff about it that, like you said, doesn't age well, and it's like, I still like the movie, don't get me wrong. It's just... It's not as pleasant to watch with, you know, thinking about all that stuff. Yeah. All these years later, uh, revisiting it, there's still definitely moments that I really like and and moments that make me laugh out loud. But uh, it, it hasn't aged as well as some of the other ones. Right. Like Jason Amy, I think, has aged very well. I, f- I still find that to be a really good movie. Um, so overall, I gave it three and a half out of five movie burgers. Movie burgers. Wow. Okay. Wasn't <laughs> expecting that. Okay. So, all right. Yeah, that's uh, that's reasonable. I'm, I'm surprised you went that low, but, you know, I, I guess, you know. Yeah. Despite being a big Kevin Smith fan. Uh, yeah. Watching it now just doesn't, uh, it doesn't do it as much for me as it did 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Mm, God. It's so this movie's old enough to drink. That's right. It is. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got for today. I really appreciate you coming on, Dan. It's uh, been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, check out the podcast whenever you get a chance. Let me know if you have any movies that you want me to check out, and maybe I'll, I'll cover them. Maybe I won't. No promises. All right, well, you guys have a great day. I'll see you later. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 